All right, kiddos, Kids Connection. So pre-K and kindergartners, you can be dismissed to room three, which is just behind these back doors. Also, I need to remind you regarding kids' ministry, VBS, Vacation Bible School, is July 11th through the 15th. Uh, The theme is Cave Quest. You probably saw the little cave out there in the foyer. Whoever did that did a really, really nice job. Uh, Cave Quest is open to four-year-olds through sixth grade. Uh, We always do a great job with BBS here at at Edenby Church. So start signing up for that. Start thinking about ways that you're going to get involved and serve with that ministry. Um, It's super encouraging for our church. It's great to see uh, people come together and serve uh, in such a meaningful cause as well. All right, so turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be at the end of chapter 3 today, beginning in verse 18, carrying forward to verse 22. I'm a little hot, I think. I, I, I just hear nothing but a ring. So Martin Luther, esteemed theologian of the Protestant Reformation, it also is like temperature warm in here a little bit too, so... Um, it's my last Sunday. I can, I can break, you know, whatever. <laughs> I'll read the Luther quote in just a moment. All right. Luther, esteemed theologian of the Protestant Reformation. When he came to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, he could only say these words. A wonderful text this is. And a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament. I do not know for certain what Peter means. I cannot understand, and I cannot explain it. And there has been no one who has explained it. So with that, here goes. (laughs) Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is God's word. I've used a term to describe a conviction that we share about the pulpit ministry at Enid Enby Church, and the, the term is expository preaching. Defined expositional preaching takes the main point of a passage of Scripture and makes that point the main point of the sermon. And then it does work to apply that point to the life of the believer or the life of the listener. So that's what I've sought to do as your pastor over the last 46 months take the main point of a passage and make it the main point of the sermon. My task has been to study what the original author was writing, organize it into something that you can digest so that you can better understand God's word, and then apply it to your everyday life. And expositional preaching is important 
because it is God's word that convicts and converts and builds up and sanctifies God's people. Therefore, preaching that makes the point of the text, the point of the sermon, actually makes God's rule the agenda of the church, not the preacher's agenda, right? So hopefully you've caught on to God's agenda as we've studied Philippians and 1 John and Jonah and the Gospel of Mark and Titus and now 1 Peter. Hopefully you've seen that, that the sermons that, that I've preached from these books, they have one agenda, to make what God has revealed in Scripture the passion of our church. That's the heart behind expositional preaching. So given all of that, our passage today presents remarkable challenges for the preacher who wants to faithfully exposit the Scriptures, which is to say it poses remarkable challenges for me this morning. Uh, A commentator I referenced this week, he said that verses 19 and 20 contain 180 different exegetical combinations, which means those verses could take you in about 180 different places, depending on how you interpret words or tenses or the different angles on those texts. Just a ton of landmines, a ton of interpretations. Given all of that, I want to approach this text primarily from what we do no, from what's very, very clear here. And then I want to deal with the complexities using three simple ground rules. They are these. One, I want to limit my reach. And what I mean by that is I have no intention of trying to settle centuries and centuries of, of mystifying debate regarding this text. Guys I greatly respect are on all different sides of this, uh, this passage of Scripture. Secondly, I'm going to refrain from reducing my preaching by turning it into a lesson on the finer points of of biblical interpretation or hermeneutics. I don't want to be highly technical in the pulpit. I just don't think that's generally helpful for people. And then third, I want to present what's here in a way that encourages you, mainly because I am certain that that was Peter's intent in writing. This is God's word. It's inspired by his spirit. There is much to feast on, and I think Peter wants you to be encouraged by what you find. And so what I do know from reading this text repeatedly over the course of the last several days is that this is a passage chiefly and supremely concerned with exalting and praising and marveling at the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what I know. And that's why I've broken it down into four sections all of them specifically relating to Jesus Christ. The sections are Christ's substitution, Christ's proclamation, Christ's resurrection, and Christ's ascension. So my last sermon as your pastor, we're going to talk all about Jesus this morning. I wouldn't have it any other way. All right, first, Christ's substitution, verse 18. Notice what he says to start the passage. For Christ also suffered. What has Peter been highlighting throughout this epistle, most pointedly or specifically the previous section that we, that we looked at last week? He's been highlighting suffering. These Christians he is writing to, they are suffering. So he says, hey, guess what, folks? Christ also suffered. And the point he's making is Christ is one with us in our experience of suffering. 
The one to whom you pray, the the one who is your hope in life, the one whose grace you depend upon, he walked where you walk, lived where you live, suffered in the myriad of ways you have suffered, and even more deeply than those. When you seek help in Jesus, you don't seek the help of one who is not able to understand your experience. You seek the help of a fellow sufferer. And that is huge news. Right, Rebecca? But it gets huger. Is huger a word? It gets huger. Christ is not merely a fellow sufferer. We don't love Christ because miserably loves company. We can just kind of get together and wallow in the suffering. No, his suffering had a certain purpose. Stories are best when we can see the purpose in the suffering. Christ had a purpose, which was to be our substitute. Christ is our substitute. The meat of verse 18 is one of the clearest, most crisp statements of the gospel that we can find in in all of Scripture. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. If you ever want to share the gospel with somebody, go to 1 Peter 3.18 and just unpack what's there. It's a simple gospel presentation. Just a crisp, clear, concise picture of what's going on in Christ in bringing us to God. Let's break it down. First, Christ suffered. We covered that. The Lord of the universe endured pain and loss and separation and chastisement and mocking and injustice and abandonment. He suffered. Whatever suffering you have endured... Your Savior can meet you there. Why? Because he suffered. But then it says his suffering was once for all. When Peter writes that Christ died once for all, he means Christ's death was sufficient for all time, and therefore it could never be repeated by anyone else. Not even Christ himself could die again for your sins. Therefore, the repeated annual sacrifices of bulls and goats, they could never do what Jesus did in his death on the cross. Whatever self-righteousness that you bring to God that you think does good for you, whatever sacrifices you've made to please God, the Bible calls that trash. It calls it refuge. It, It accomplishes nothing. Christ's sacrifice was the final and thoroughly complete sacrifice for sins. And so Peter writes next, this sacrifice was the righteous for the unrighteous. Said another way, the just one for the unjust ones. That sacrificial act was a substitution. I mentioned this already, but let me say a little more. Jesus, the righteous one who knew no sin, At the cross, he was crucified, stood in the place of sinners, stood in my place, took my punishment upon himself. He did so that I might be accepted by God and you as well. We cannot in and of ourselves achieve that acceptance, and we cannot in and of ourselves satisfy the demands of God's righteousness. We need someone to both live the righteous life we were supposed to live and die the death we were meant to die because of the sin and the rebellion that we've displayed against God. Which is precisely why God's wrath reserved for sinners was delivered to Jesus at the cross. There was God's wrath delivered there. It wasn't just a bloody death. 
It wasn't simply a Roman crucifixion. There was an exchange going on. God was pouring out his wrath upon this subject who was also his son. And that wrath was a wrath meant for us. It was a wrath deserved by us. Jesus stood in our place and drank every last drop of it. And so hear me now on this substitutionary atonement that Christ shed his blood as a substitute in our place. That, that he died, condemned, and, and, and was punished as a sinner. This is absolutely essential to the message of the gospel. The great evangelical scholar John Stott, who I quote frequently, he said, substitution is the essence and heart of the atonement itself. He goes on to explain in his book, The Cross of Christ, he says, how could God express simultaneously his holiness and judgment and his love and pardon? How could he do that? Only by providing a divine substitute for the sinner so that the substitute would receive the judgment and the sinner the pardon. We sinners still, of course, have to suffer some of the personal, psychological, and social consequences of our sins. But the penal consequence, the deserved penalty of alienation from God, was born by another in our place so that we may be spared. Think about that. Let that sink in. And as that sinks in, the words from a certain hymn should be building in your heart. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Love motivated his substitution. He loves you, sinner. He died for you. But that's not all. Don't view Christ's death as your, as your substitute myopically. Don't observe substitution from the single angle of God's love. Consider one of the most powerful statements I've ever read outside the Bible. It's by J.I. Packer. He wrote, The wrath of God is as personal and as potent as his love. I'll say it again. The wrath of God is as personal and as potent as his love, which means this. To the extent that Jesus dying on the cross is an outlandish and overwhelming display of God's love for me, which there is no more potent proof of God's love for me than the cross. So just as God's love for me is personal, so was the manner in which Christ endured God's wrath for me. Meaning, on the cross, Jesus did not atone for sin in a general way. No, he atoned for my sin in a very personal way. My iniquity was laid upon him. Your iniquity was laid upon him. That thing that you did yesterday, or that thing you did last night, or that thing that you did way back that you've never been able to shake the shame of, Jesus took the full measure of your punishment for that. His love for you is potent and personal because his death for you was potent and personal. You see that? It says he was put to death in the flesh. He had a real body. He was 100% man, and he suffered in the flesh, but goes on to say he was made alive in the Spirit. And that end of verse 18, this is just further encouragement to Peter's readers. That even though Jesus died because of his commitment to God's will, he experienced resurrection. Therefore, we should remain faithful 
We should remain faithful because we have this confidence that God will vindicate and proclaim victory for us also. Again, Peter's goal is to encourage. He's your substitute. Jesus died in your place. He didn't broadly die for the unrighteous. He died for your particular unrighteousness. Everything you deserve was paid for by Jesus Christ. He's your substitute. When my kids gave their testimonies a couple of weeks ago from the baptismal, one of the things we talked about was don't talk about truth, don't talk about God, don't talk about Jesus or the cross in a general way. We know you know the facts. We need to hear it in a personal way, in a way that connects your heart with those facts. Let's look at the next two verses. This is where things get kind of tricky. Christ's proclamation. So Peter continues with the realm of the Spirit into verse 19. And and in doing so, he begins to address something that Christ did in the Spirit, which the verse tells us what he did. He proclaimed to the Spirit's in prison. So the questions that confront us with that verse are numerous. Where did Christ go to make this proclamation? When did he go? Who were the spirits he proclaimed to? What is meant by in prison? Why are they there? And so as you can imagine, there are a myriad of different answers to these questions. I'm going to mention one very valid interpretation that I don't hold to, (laughs) and then tell you what I do think Peter is talking about here. Some very reputable teachers and scholars say that this verse is referring to Christ's disembodied spirit who, between between his death and resurrection, went to the underworld and proclaimed victory over the demonic spirits that were held there. So these demonic spirits, they, they had actually taken bodily form in Noah's day. They had copulated with women in an effort to corrupt all of mankind. You can read about that in the first part of Genesis 6. So because of that, God banished them to a place referred to as Tartarus in Greek mythology, this particular place in the underworld. And and it was to these spirits, some say, that Christ made his victorious proclamation. And that is a terribly simple synopsis of a valid view of this text. There are really good arguments for this view. I'm not going to get into them, but they're good arguments. Men like John MacArthur, Chuck Swindoll, many, many others hold to that or some nuance of that interpretation. I don't, which I don't part ways with those guys very often. But what I do think Peter is saying is that the spirit of Christ, so the pre-incarnate spirit of Christ, he preached through the testimony of Noah. Noah's day was wicked. He was the only faithful man found on the earth. And when he heard from God and set to work building the ark, his obedience to God was a spirit-inspired proclamation of judgment upon all those who would not repent and believe in the Lord. And there is precedent in 1 Peter concerning the Spirit of Christ speaking through the Old Testament prophets. I'm not just pulling that out and applying it to Noah. Chapter 1, verse 10. The, The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ There's that word, that phrase, the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when the predicted sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories would occur. So the prophets operating in the Spirit of Christ. 
The Spirit of Christ speaks through the prophets. Noah was one of the earliest of those prophets who pronounced the judgment of God that would come with the flood. And the Spirit proclaimed it through Noah to a wicked and disobedient generation. So while the ark was being prepared for 120 years, Noah heralded the importance of believing in God and being saved from his judgment. No one listened. In fact, Noah was mocked and belittled. And the days continued to be so wicked that God would, in fact, send that earth-destroying flood. So you see, just connecting this with First Peter in a more meaningful way, Noah was the original exile. He was a part of a faithful few who were steadfast and obedient to God when the whole world around him rebelled and sinned against God. You see that? And you say, yeah, Jay, well, that seems valid. I get what you're saying. But, but what about that line, in prison? What does that mean? Jesus wasn't speaking through Noah to people who were in jail. How's that explained? Well, it's a very common way of speaking. When we talk, we, we mix history. We sort of blur our timelines. For instance, you may say, the queen was born in 1925. And in saying that, you've mixed history because she wasn't the queen in 1925. But you know that people will understand what you're talking about. The girl who would later become queen was born in 1925. You don't have to say, the person who has now become the queen but wasn't the queen then, she was born in 1925. Because talking like that would be exhausting. And so Peter says, those people who were rebellious And mockers, those in Noah's day, those who rejected the message of God's servant, they are now the spirits in prison who are awaiting their final judgment. They were disobedient then, they are in prison now. And so this is the view I hold. It's the view of Augustine and Calvin, contemporary teachers like Wayne Grudem and Paul Tripp hold to this view. Again, it's not the only view. I don't even know that it's the best view, but it's the one that I think gets at the heart of what Peter is saying. And this view, it fits the context because these believers that Peter is writing to, they could relate to Noah. The world that they lived in was increasingly wicked. They were trying to be faithful and obedient to what God had called them to be as the church. They were facing persecution and suffering for what they believed Look at Noah, and Noah was called to suffer. And that suffering was extensive. It it took a long time to build that ark. There was no water. It looked like an act of distinct foolishness to do what Noah was doing. He looked like a crazy person. But Noah acted on one thing. He acted on the command of God, and he believed that God was to be trusted. He believed that God's word was true, and he acted accordingly. And by that act, he preached a message of repentance to the people who watched him. He lived out his faith in God. The world around him observed, considered him a fool. Think about our own day. Think about our own views. Think about what we hold to in reference to morality. Think about what we hold to in, mess, in, in, in reference to absolute truth. We have a world around us that thinks we're crazy. Imagine being Noah, 
Imagine what he endured day after day, year after year, decade after decade, until that ark was built, until that flood came. And, and when it came, his faith was vindicated as Noah and his family were saved from the death and the destruction of the flood. So just as Noah believed God and was saved, so these exiled Christians These men and women whom the Spirit of Christ was also speaking through by their ongoing witness and by their obedience, they would be saved as well. They would be vindicated by God's judgment. What a great encouragement from Peter, both to them and to us. But that's not the only tricky part of the passage. Let's move to verse 21. Next point in your notes, Christ's resurrection. But before we talk about Christ's resurrection, we have this statement about baptism that we have to navigate. And Peter brings up baptism because he had just mentioned water. The eight persons that made up Noah's family were brought, the text says, safely through the water. They were saved through the water. But if they had been in the water and not in the ark, the water that saved them would have actually destroyed them. You know, the water wiped out the the, the whole old world. And at the same time, it delivered them into a new world. And so, you have to think sort of abstractly here, but the floodwaters symbolize baptism. What then does Peter mean when he says, baptism now saves you? Does that mean we have to be baptized to be saved? Does it mean something supernatural happens at our baptism? Are these waters sort of mystical and spooky and magical? Let me answer that question with another question. How much water actually touched Noah and his family? None. So the water that saved them never touched them. The water only saved them because they were what? They were already in the ark. Baptism by itself cannot literally save anyone. It is Christ who saves us. Baptism cannot literally by itself wash our sins away. We must come to Christ by faith to be cleansed of our unrighteousness. But baptism is crucially important because it is the pledge of a good conscience to the Lord. Baptism is like pledging allegiance to Jesus Christ. It's the moment in which we cross the line and take our public stand for the Lord. In many Muslim countries, Christian converts, they are not persecuted until they are baptized. In Sudan and, and Libya and, and Niger and Saudi Arabia, baptism can be a life or death decision. When you go public in the church through baptism, you're putting your life on the line. It means you've decided to leave the old world behind and get in the ark, the ark of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the issue is not have you been baptized, but rather have you become a follower of of Jesus. We are not saved by water literally any more than Noah was saved by the water literally. Because he wasn't saved by the water. He was saved through the water, but the same water that destroyed others saved Noah's family because they were in the ark. Jesus Christ is a true and better ark. If we are in Christ, we are saved from the wrath and the judgment of God. Are you in Christ? Do you come here today 
knowing that you've taken that step. You're in the ark. You're in Jesus Christ. You've professed it publicly through something like baptism. It's not cloudy. It's not fuzzy. Because you know what? In Noah's day, it wasn't cloudy. There were those who were saved. They were in the ark. And there were those who were not. They were, they were the ones who remained outside. Don't remain outside the ark. Don't remain outside of Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him. Throw your full weight of hope upon him. He can take it. And he can deliver you no matter what you've been through. Then Peter adds one final phrase when he says we are saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We do not worship a dead Savior this morning. If we did our hopes and our dreams, they would have died with him. We would, we would have no hopes or hope, no dreams. But we do. We worship a risen Christ. And with that statement, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see how perfect the picture really is here. The waters of the great flood picture the waters of baptism, and the waters of baptism point to something of supreme significance, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. When a baptismal candidate stands in the water, that person represents Jesus dying on the cross. Lowering them into the water represents Jesus buried in the tomb. Raising them out of the water represents Jesus rising from the dead. And a corresponding death, burial, and resurrection has occurred in the spiritual life of that believer. Baptism is a symbol of all of that. Identification with Christ, being crucified with Christ, having the old man buried with Christ, and risen again to new life. The whole gospel is found in every baptism, and every baptism preaches the gospel message. I'm so glad we got to do that today. Final point, Christ's ascension. Peter closes this, this treatise on Christ with, with a final soaring statement about his authority. Verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. In the Bible, the right hand is the position of honor and authority. To be at God's right hand, it means you are in a preeminent position. You're, you're in the highest spot in all the universe. Christ is now in heaven because his earthly work of redemption is now complete. You, you, know, you know why Christ ascended bodily? I mean, obviously, it could have just been poof, and he'd been gone, and people would be like, where did Christ go? You know why he ascended bodily? Because this truth is so vitally important. That, that his earthly work is done, and now he sits at God's right hand. And that visual ascension, that bodily ascension, was core to these early church believers. And by his death and through his resurrection, all creatures are subjected to his sovereign power. The Greek verb translated submission or subjection, it means to line up under someone. It's a military term. So every being in existence lines up under Jesus, every single one. Even the devil has to line up under Jesus and take orders from him. Though he fights against him, he knows he cannot win. 
He knows that every authority, every power is in subjection to Christ. One of the major themes that we've looked at in 1 Peter is this theme of submission. Peter is repeatedly calling Christians to be subject and to be submissive in in the different spheres of their lives, vocationally and toward government and in the marriage relationship. But look, look here. Look how this passage closes. Everything is subjected unto Christ. What that means? That means we can be submissive because ultimately the one who loves us and died in our place now sits at God's right hand. Everything is subjected to him. We don't need to be in control because we're in relationship with the one who is in absolute control. We can give up power and position because our trust is in the one with ultimate power and ultimate position. Tim Keller says this about the ascension He says, you believer, you can face the world with peace in your heart because he, Jesus, is at the right hand of God as the executive director of history, directing everything for the benefit of the church. If you belong to him, then everything that happens ultimately happens for you. And I'm not trying to put you at center stage. I'm not trying to say the world revolves around you or God or or Jesus revolves around you. I'm just saying Christ's position at the right hand of God is there for your benefit, to intercede for you, to come alongside you, to know that you can give up rights, you can give up control, you can submit because the one who doesn't have to submit to anyone or anything is for you. If he is for us, Paul wrote, who can be against us? No one can be against us. As I said early on in this message, I think Peter's primary goal in the passage was to encourage. It wasn't to confuse the readers about a trip that Jesus took to the underworld. It wasn't to to bring up questions about whether or not baptism saves you. The goal was to encourage. So I'd ask you this morning, when you're discouraged, what do you do? Do you head for more chocolate? Maybe you go for something a little little heavier. Maybe you binge on something else. Maybe you turn the television on for hours and hours and and hours. Sort of that Netflix, just endless cycle, just trying to escape the encouragement. Maybe it's a little less subtle in your life. Maybe you've just straight up question the love and faithfulness of God. Maybe that's you. Maybe you give yourself over to to, to victim themes that you you repeat to yourself how, how unusually hard your life has been, harder than anybody else that you know. What do you do when you're discouraged? Peter's given you something to work with here. He's encouraging you with the truth about Jesus Christ. He's encouraging you with the substitutionary work of Christ on your behalf. He's encouraging you with the gospel, with with the legacy of the people of God. He's encouraging you with the reality of the redemption that is now going on for you with Christ at God's right hand. You are saved, but you are being saved, and you will be saved, and you remember that Christ rules on your behalf at all times. So when you're discouraged... 
Do you preach the gospel to yourself? Is that a default in you? Do you go immediately to truths like these? Do you seek someone else who will preach the gospel to you? Or, you, or do you go elsewhere? You get cathartic. Or do you seek that person that will give you platitudes, tell you maybe what you want to hear, pander to your emotions? As long as you are living in this fallen world, as, as long as suffering exists, you are a person in need of the gospel. There's never a day in your life where you don't need the gospel. And may God make you a person, make you a people who run to the gospel, run to the gospel, run to the gospel because it's there you find hope, there you find encouragement, there you find a reason to continue. Last night I looked back at the manuscript of the sermon, the first sermon that I ever preached to you as your pastor. And as I looked at it, it connected deeply with some of the things I just said. I'm just going to read it, just a couple of paragraphs as I close. I wrote, I preached ultimately these words. I said, my message for you today is embrace the gospel. Believe the message of the gospel. Respond to the gospel. Be converted by the gospel. And then stay there. Don't move beyond the gospel. Stay there. Wallow in it. Let it permeate your life. Let it color your being. I went on to say, that's my heading. Not just for this morning, but in all the time God gives me to be the pastor at Enid Mennonite Brethren Church. I want to lead us to a better understanding of what it means to believe the gospel and apply it to life. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth we have here. That your son died in our place. Rose again as proof that his work was validated and gives us victory that he ascended to your right hand and he stands there today interceding for us he is for us he's going to make sure that not a single one of us falls or falters or falls apart Lord I pray that if there's someone here today and maybe they've heard the gospel for the first time maybe they've been coming three or four years and they've heard it every week God I pray that today would be the day that they respond and put their trust in Jesus Lord we thank you for what you have for us in passages like this I pray that these people would continue to preach the gospel to themselves Lord I pray that I would continue to preach the gospel to myself Lord in We just look to Christ today. We look to Christ. It's in his name we pray.
just want to read that last verse uh, and uh, verse 18 together. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him, finally. And then we'll send you out with his benediction from the last verse of chapter 5. Peace be to all of you who are in Christ. So we go in God's grace. We go with the peace of Christ because we're in him. You may be dismissed.